Welcome to Sound It Out. Hi, this is Rachel Elliott. Welcome to Sound It Out. I remember closing my eyes because it was um, such a flood of sound and um, as much as the color component was really striking, I really appreciated um, how the drone kind of filled the space and allowed us to really sink into those tones. For me, it was really important to say the title at the beginning of the piece before we do this kind of strange, loosely structured, loose, loosely tightly structured piece. <laughs> um, uh, she's sort of like tricking a group to do a meditation or something. My name's Yana. My name's Yasmin. Did, did you feel like you guys were making intentional choices um, when you were there? Um, I did, yeah. I also went back and forth between like opening and closing my eyes. Um, and I felt like I could get into maybe a more meditative state. And yeah, going really deep into the tones, like Yana said. So the title, I think, is her trying to connect this idea of these two women, their struggle with what a more equitable organization of people could be. And that's why I think the piece is very political, because in, in its heart, it's really about what ways do we think we should organize, which is kind of the definition of politics. On February 17th, 2019, an unusual meeting took place in Toronto City Council Chambers. Unusual not only because it took place on a Sunday night and was a sold-out, ticketed event. What was most unusual about this meeting was that even though many collective decisions were made, almost no words were exchanged. In this final episode of Sounded Out, we will investigate how, why, and by whom this feat was performed in the staging by the artist-led collective, Public Recordings, of composer Pauline Oliveros' 1970s score, to Valerie Solanas and Marilyn Monroe in recognition of their desperation. But first a word about this program. Sounded Out has been airing since 2014, twice a month on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph, Ontario. The show has been a place to discover, present, and interrogate the theme of improvisation and the ongoing work conducted in the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation headquartered at the University of Guelph, and directed by theatre studies professor Ajay Heble. It has also been a way for me to explore topics related to the doctoral research I was conducting into music and the transformation of habit. This research is now complete and is available online under the title Collaborative Temporality. This means that Sounded Out in its current form is also coming to an end. This is the final episode that I will be making. But because the work of the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation continues, I suspect the show will re-emerge in a refreshed format before too long, so don't unsubscribe just yet. 
Past episodes of Sounded Out are archived on our SoundCloud page, so please go listen, like, and share on that platform. Finally, I want to say a profound thank you to Christopher Curry at CFRU and to Ajay Heble, Justine Richardson, Kim Thorne, and Elizabeth Jackson at the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation. They shepherded this project along over the years, imparting the right combination of guidance and freedom. Thank you. What does it look like? I think it's two pages. It's verbal, right? So it's just, it's just all text. That's Christopher Willis. He's an associate artist with Public Recordings and the one who spearheaded the process of performing Paulina Oliveros's score at City Hall. So the piece is composed in three parts, and each part is signaled by a different color of light. The lighting was cues for uh, the sounds that we chose. So before we start the piece, every individual chooses five sounds. That's Alison Cameron. She's an internationally renowned composer and experimental performer based in Toronto. The score instructs the performers to individually select five pitches in advance, or actually she refers to them as tones, which is sort of a nice ambiguity, I think. You have a, a bass sound that you go back to at the end of the piece, but you start with one and then you, you move to the other fours, depending on the light configurations. So there, the light was kind of like a conductor in a way. The performers are asked to create very long, sustained gestures throughout the performance that change according to when the light changes. And so there are instructions that, for each section of light that um, introduce the different sounds that you've selected in advance. And then the, the challenge is to sort of regulate what you're doing according to what other people are doing. And this is a kind of attention, she called it like an attention strategy um, that was supposed to affect what she described as a continuous circulation of power. <laughs> we did a performance a year ago at uh, the Gardner Museum in Toronto. So I was part of that. And then he asked some of the same people and then a bunch of new people for the performance at City Hall. It was like winds, flute, trombone, an amplified street pylon and a harmonica and voice. And then there were electronics. So there was like two synths and synth saxophone and some sine waves or tone generators. And then there was like, there was like a string section straight up, double bass and cello and two violas. Oh, and two cellos. And then there was percussion, uh, Symbols. Jermaine Lou is playing like a kind of floor tom with various objects on it, and Evan Weber was playing timpani. The people who performed at City Hall were Anne Bourne, Alison Cameron, Victoria Chong, Ishan Dave, Price is Easy, Ellen Fury, Tom Gill, Claire Harvey, Amy Henderson, Brendan Jensen, Jermaine Lou, Kate and Kervis. B. Palomina, Liz Peterson, Annie Spadafora, Brian Solomon, Heather Selmer, Evan Weber, and Christopher Willis. It was Christopher Willis that brought the idea of the piece to public recordings. Here he tells me a bit about the background of the piece and what interests him about it. She made the piece following a period of not performing. Evidently, she experienced a lot of anxiety 
following the kind of events of 1968. And this idea of an artist such as her, who did so many amazing things throughout her life, um, and finding this kind of moment to sort of start again after this period of struggle and all the kind of social and political unease of that time. It's important to note that this is the first time that Public Recordings has ever looked at a work made by somebody outside of the collective and interpreted it directly in, in that way. That's Amy Henderson, founder of Public Recordings and associate artist with them. I really see to Valerie being uh, really key in the development of the company's identity because it felt like it offered a conversation for us to be in when an artist brought a project to the company and said, hey, this seems like something that really belongs in, in your midst. We do experimental work on groups, how groups make things. That's associate artist and dramaturg Evan Weber. We use different performance disciplines to triangulate our activities, I guess. That has included dance and music and sound activities and theater and publication and educational stuff. So it, it, it takes many different forms. It's an interdisciplinary collective, but our projects are linked by curiosity about how groups of people can do things together. We were very much, I think from the very beginning, curious about the company itself as a project. The group is, as its kind of roots in experimental dance. It was started by Amy Henderson and a media artist in the mid-2000s. And the work that they were making was really collaborative and kind of looking at ways that groups of people work together often in very like interdisciplinary modes. And music and sound was always a kind of really important part of the work. Over the last five or six years, the company kind of evolved into a shared leadership structure rather than it being kind of a platform for Amy's dance works exclusively. And this was kind of a reflection of the way that the works were being made, which was like highly collaborative and kind of always looking at shared authorship and really thinking about the, the process of making works as kind of inseparable from the aesthetics and output of the of that process that kind of originally started in the model of like an artistic directorship but pretty quickly um, came to sort of trouble that idea as a as an organizational framework for collaborating that I think kind of echoes a lot of what was happening in the 70s in Canada specifically, like you see the rise of the artist-run center. I thought it would be really interesting to look at a piece of music as a kind of site for thinking about how groups of people organize. And Alveros's music generally is kind of concerned with the relationship between the individual and the community. And like that piece in particular, I think, is a kind of moment where she formalizes a lot of her questions around how music convenes groups of people. And personally, I was really fascinated in how it, it kind of, on the score itself on the page looks like it's intended for a kind of 
concert ensemble are like still very intended to be filed away and kind of transmitted through conservatory model or something like this. But even though it was written this way, it was performed by a mix of professional and amateur musicians. Let's pause now and listen to a little excerpt from the City Hall performance. Interdisciplinarity is an outcome of, of having the specific curiosity that we do. And because the goal of our work and the like, central this curiosity is more important than maintaining any particular conventions of like disciplinary practice, but to Valerie, that was like the beginning of me knowing more about post-war American avant-garde music. And I think that was probably good for the project. Yeah, I played the timpani as part of this orchestra. And I think that I was personally dealing with, with the challenge of like being one of the, say, like less conventionally skilled members of the orchestra. Amy Henderson also performed in a new role during the staging. I was mostly a player, one of the ensemble, as a dance artist, performer, and choreographer. Um, one of the people in the ensemble who was not um, a trained musician. Here's how Alison Cameron sees this mix of skill levels. I mean, I don't have any issues in terms of somebody's a professional, somebody's not. I, and I see it as a tremendous value. I mean, I, I always am really excited about it because it's, uh, it's a chance to hear uh, someone play in a different way and how they express themselves on the instrument is always going to be kind of unique um, if, if they've coming to it really green right and mm -hmm. with this score that didn't come into it because we're making sounds together there's no specific notes that you have to play there's no notation 
discipline of traditional music isn't isn't really involved in that way. The things that are involved are listening, which everybody can do, and playing. But like certainly with loudness or how to express yourself. Of course, a professional musician would have more idea of since they played their instrument for so long. In terms of how people produce their sound, it was really up to them individually, and and that's kind of what the piece for us was about a lot too. It really was a communal kind of thing in that way. I feel and. Uh, and and that's where it kind of lives and dies, right, that piece. Here's Evan Weber. We tried to discuss what we had done in a kind of open way that's like there was actually just like a discussion about what we had done. But mostly we tried to let people who felt like there was something that they needed to address specifically to do that by teaching a little module to the group. You know, Allison, for example, um, like filtering her desires for the performance into, you know, a, a two-hour workshop with the company where she um, led us through a bunch of exercises and discussions specifically about dynamics as a way as a way of working on the show to to work on other things as a way of working on the performance. Yeah, because everyone does have different knowledges and powers and to just name. Mm -hmm. Things verbally might be a, a little limited. Yeah, and it tends to foreclose people's possibility to to make moves, <laughs> like to make their own moves. Even when there's a collaborative feedback discussion, it's really hard to offer feedback that doesn't produce a kind of binary response and doesn't create a value judgment about one's own or other people's activities in the thing. Whereas if you like, it's much more effective to just try to increase everybody's understanding and awareness of the principle that is at play and then see what happens. One example of this is a short workshop that Alison Cameron initiated dealing with dynamics. Um, well, I was concerned that people, or they were being too kind of shy with their sounds or their instruments, so I was just trying to encourage people to, you know, let it all out and play loud. I think what happened was people did feel more like, well, yeah, let's, let's not just, this isn't really necessarily supposed to be a quiet piece. Let's find a range of our sounds here. And I just wanted people to feel comfortable with that and not be worried about expressing whatever sound came out when they were playing loud. So, you know, somebody who had played a cello, who wasn't a cellist, uh, find out, well, how is it that you play loud on that when you don't have, you know, 20 years of being a cellist behind you, you know. So the thing is, is that in the piece, uh, there's a very specific part of the instructions that say that when someone becomes louder than the rest of the ensemble, like raises above it, everyone has to raise to meet that person. So this is also what I was thinking about, that if you're not able to do that, then how are we going to meet them, you know? Here's Christopher Willis again on the limits of giving verbal feedback. I was thinking a lot about the the role of like discourse in this project in the group and how how we talk about what we're doing and the gr the degree to which we do that as a group or in smaller groups and there was one day where we actually used the lighting score of the piece to structure our conversation about what we were doing did I already tell you about this yeah yeah you did and and you had com a topic for each lighting section one of the things we did um, when we were working on the project was to set up specific frameworks for sharing like strategies that people were uh, working on and and reflections and thoughts that people were having in a really like f structured way 
we use the lighting score to structure a kind of space where the group would break up into smaller groups. There would be a subject to discuss in a given color of light, and each person would have a certain amount of time to speak to what they were thinking about and feeling around that subject. And the others were to not respond, but simply to listen. And then those groups would come back together and the smaller groups would report to the larger group a kind of summary of what they had heard from their group. Um, So it's this kind of like non-discursive group thinking, (laughs) but it really created a specific kind of knowledge in the room that I think then people really felt had a lot of agency to take up in whatever way they wanted to in their performance. It's just this way of like, committing to a particular um, formal structure for listening to each other reflect on what we were doing um, rather than just having a kind of like open-ended conversation. And I was really like excited about what that produced because it was sort of like using the, using the principles of the music to reflect back on it and listen to what other people were thinking about it. And then, individually sort of absorb that in how whatever way we could and then just try to do it again and and that would necessarily influence how we were working on the music but they also give each other gestural feedback and cues during the performance itself we'll hear more about this embodied live time calibration after this short clip from the performance So, and the hand signals are to signal that you're changing your note. Uh, no, um, they're not. So in, in each section, you have instructions to play certain notes. Um, and then there are two ways that you can, uh, you can play your notes. Um, one is unmodulated. So that's like a pure, an unmodulated tone. So, I mean, think of like a pure sine wave or something. 
And then a modulated version of your tone is... Oh, here's the score. Ha! <laughs> Modulation is... um any variation of that tone that doesn't change the fundamental frequency. So it could be like a tremolo or a timbral shift or a kind of um, changing the volume or vibrato, you know, or um, I think, and then it gets more complicated with electronics, which is maybe why Allison was so curious about it. Cause you could, I guess you could like frequency modulate the tone with another tone <laughs> and then things get pretty, out there but um yeah so there those two ways of playing your tones modulated and unmodulated um and the hand signals uh right so here uh, a circle made with the thumb and first finger so it's like a kind of um almost like an okay sign or like a circle sign with your hand is to play it means play your long tones unmodulated so so the conductor in your group is saying play your tones don't don't modulate them and then a fist um means to modulate so then they cue you to start playing with your tones and the palm out with the arm straight up means to fade out so in that way um the conductor can ask the the group to um lay out yeah. yeah. It felt like this way, I mean, both as something to look at, like it's very iconic, even though they're just this small little thing that's happening when you're performing, but this sort of nonverbal communication happening in the group, I think is really interesting. But also just what I realized was like, it manifests some of the philosophical questions of her piece in such a specific and formal way which is to say that it it produces smaller groups within the group that have a different responsibility to each other and in a very simplistic way that produces a different sound and I realized suddenly that there's this one hand signal that asks the people in your group to stop playing and to be silent I got really excited about that because I was like oh that's when you have to be really actively listening for like when to come back in and also like stay present but it also de facto creates an orchestration right which is kind of like like the group self generates an orchestration because sometimes people lay out but I, it was so funny when we started exploring it in the second time and like it was so clear that like certain people were just like really not excited about these hand signals well with the electronics i felt like there was more of a free hand so i didn't i didn't watch people for signals or anything like that and i told them that i wasn't i was not going to do that <laughs> I said nope not doing that in the score it treats these electronics like a kind of independent thing so i just wanted to maintain that she was thinking orchestral right with the strings and the winds and this kind of stuff and that they were typically conducted sections whereas electronics was like this whole other world right and mm -hmm. wasn't typical to an orchestra setting it was just its own kind of thing so that's sort of how I approached it and I also discussed that with my colleagues like Vic Chong also was playing electronics so I went you know and talked to her about it and Tom and they they also of course agreed that they didn't want to pay attention to any signals so mm -hmm. um so we were kind of a little bit on our own 
once we told everybody that we were just going to do independent things that, that you know Chris didn't Chris was fine with that so in the mm. city hall performance we looked more at what the sound requirements of the score were there was just specific things about um if you play electronics for example Pauline Alvarez had a very specific section about if you're playing electronics she wanted to have certain frequencies uh present throughout so I just made sure that I had those, and I was playing. I was using my iPad and my and my tablet uh, to create frequencies in these little programs on the um, tablets, huh. and and then I also had instruments that I played as well. So I just played. I played a little bit of the Casio sax, and I had a little noise generators along with my um, tablets that were run through a larger. Uh, I think they were going through another sound system. What were they going through? Um, she just wanted uh, some sign tones. Like, they weren't specific numbered frequencies. She wanted, like, a, con a continuous drone of a sound. So, like, I just chose a certain frequency drone on a sine wave, and then I think I also had a, a sawtooth wave. So those were just kind of constant throughout. I think back in the 60s, like, this wasn't a typical thing to do. We had to still look at the score as a as a timepiece as well. We're not interpreting it as people would have in 1968. It would have been different. And of course, we're bringing decades of electronic knowledge to the piece. I just kind of wanted to situate myself in that score time frame, if you want to call it that, so that it brought out that part of it. And I also thought it was a way to sort of have a ubiquitous kind of presence in the piece. Yeah, so it kind of came in and out. Like you heard it, you didn't hear it. You know, it was, it was present, but if everything else was going, then you didn't really hear it. People you know, blended in with the sound in different ways, consciously or unconsciously, in terms of the performance. Explicit hand signals, however, were not the only way that gesture figured in the performance. Yeah, so it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty theatrical. Amy, as a dancer and choreographer, is particularly attuned to questions of space and movement. Uh, simply on the level of lighting in general and the fact that it was part of the score, I think immediately announced the, the theatricality of this piece. For me, there's absolutely no way of separating spatial relationships and orientations, proximities from the materials of the sound. Tuning into how we were in relationship to each other spatially, who we could hear, how we could hear them, and how our shifts in our orientation could affect what we were hearing and therefore because of the nature of the score and how we're responding to each other, um, what is heard. And then of course, people's relationships and how they're listening to each other also has um, a presence in the space. So that becomes also part of what's perceived. So One is watching people listening to each other in, in a very particular coded space that had all sorts of other associations, what it means to be gathered. And I felt like we were able to be also tuning to some of the ways that bodies have moved in that space previously and maybe in the future and how our movements then could offer other potentials for how those relations might play out. This piece, in its kind of 60s formalist way of 
talking about the relationship between an individual and a community, the only way that that becomes readable is if the group can be seen and heard as a group. When when there wasn't an audience that one day in the week, whereas like every other day we performed, there was someone listening, I really realized that the piece requires a witness in order for you to be working on um, being understandable as a group. There's a lot there that I think can only be felt and readable and understood if there's somebody witnessing it. The staging of the score creates a collaborative group structure only if, that is, that groupness is seen by others. For me, the bigger question of the project was to try to not restage a piece, but to try to get a group of people to practice it for an extended duration, so in different locations around the city. I don't know if it was as successful as it could have been because it was hard for people to track where we were because we were moving. Did you know that the the troupe had done public performances, or pu- sorry, public rehearsals that week in different locations throughout the city? I knew that, and uh, my intention was to go to some of the rehearsals and not just the performance, but that didn't work out. Um, and so there were a few times where I wondered kind of how differently the rehearsals felt because I'm sure the performance also was really impacted by the architecture of the space and our presence um, and the fact that it was more performance and less Somebody rehearsal. joked to me, like, the, the people at Color Code who helped us with the print for the program, I was picking up the prints and I was like, yeah, we're doing a rehearsal at um, OCAD, like, you should come to that one maybe and I was like I think the rehearsals are going to be really interesting and Jenny said for you (laughs) and I was like "Ah." it's not just the groupness itself that was present rather the process of becoming a group was also on display for me I was kind of like ah but that's exactly what I want like I want to make visible I do think there's a way that that's interesting for people and it's not just like watching a rehearsal it's like watching a group of people commit to a kind of set of agreements for a particular period of time evan sees the process of developing the performance as the primary consideration i think the outcome is or the out, the goal related to outcome is like a readable process like take a kind of graspable material form in the work that we do that does have an impact on the way things look and sound but apart from that it's it's really like trying to be committed to the to the process and the terms of the process that we set out it has a lot to do in in the case of this of that project with the relationship between the preparation and the public activities and the fact that it was a really important part of the project for us to be doing our practice in various in various ways in in public spaces the way we were rehearsing and the duration that we were rehearsing for in, in that project we worked quite a lot on trying to give the right context in a kind of didactic way with this little um, print object that we made i asked amy about this how much do you think an audience needs to know about 
sort of the process of coming to stage a piece to grasp it at when they're there? Probably the question that I ask myself constantly and will continue to ask for as long as I'm making art. There's always different degrees of familiarity with what is happening in a performance. And I mean that in the most expanded sense, in the group of people that know the most, let's say, the the people who are on stage. There's so much divergence and our works are always, or we hope them to be a place where those different styles and approaches can really meet and coexist. They can be horizontalized, but they don't need to be homogenized. And then there's the audience that come from all sorts of different perspectives and know all sorts of different things about how to listen or see. So it's really helpful for me to think that there's just all of these different degrees of familiarity. And so it's how we're negotiating that and what we think is um, non-negotiable in terms of what we all need to know to be able to be in the room together. And I mostly don't think that that's very much. (laughs) Think that that's very much. (laughs) Besides that we all have agreed to be here and that we know that we're somehow playing these parts. It seems that with a piece like the one that we played at City Hall, the depth of knowing what is at stake that someone can have who knew absolutely nothing about the process is extremely moving. And on the other end of the spectrum, it's beautiful to get feedback from people who followed along and and who also have their own relationship to, say, Oliveros' work or to public recordings practices. So all all of those things and all of those ways seem really relevant. And I would never want to say that there's that there's one way in that seems to be to to more get it, you know. But at the same time, I don't want to alienate people and I, I want these practices to be available and to feel to feel open. So we're always experimenting with how to share the process and how to also be in process on stage so that we're still in the practicing of what we think we're working on while we're performing it. I asked Christopher, why City Hall? The most dramatic way, I guess, we could imagine um, making the proposition of the piece readable, which is that it's about thinking about how people want to organize. What conceptions of community do you can you access? The idea was to sort of put it in a space that it professes to be working on that. <laughs> also, because the last time we, the first time we worked on it was in a in a gallery context, and I kind of felt like some of the bigger questions of the work were a bit lost there so I was really curious what it would mean to do it in a in a in a public space in a civic space but also in in a pedagogical spaces like working on it in schools like at OCAD and U of T and the practice of learning a piece of music being something in and itself that could manifest like a new imagination But despite the intention to create a group interactively from the ground up, it was nevertheless Christopher Willis who proposed the idea to public recordings. Here's Alison Cameron. You know, again, I sort of have to 
commend Chris for his choices. People that he chose were really amazing. It just shows his skill in that. I mean, that is a skill, you know. So how you choose people and put bring them together and put them together is a real good skill. As soon as we got together, I thought, oh, this is going to be amazing. You know, this is like, and everybody thought that. This is what Evan Weber thinks. Understanding that the project was initiated by Christopher was like, really, yeah, I, w I wouldn't want that to go away. And also that the people who are the associate artists have a really different stake in the work and have different responsibilities in it. And yeah, so it's, it's not about trying to make everything the same for everyone at all. It's trying to make all the differences explicit and to also build in opportunities for negotiation of those responsibilities and capacities. That, that, that feels like a, much more, um, like a much more ethical way of envisioning leadership. I really like it when there's a relationship between the amount of time and energy that someone has spent on something and their capacity to act in a situation. I think that horizontalize everything, but I feel like what I'm really into and what, what I think we're, we're all trying to do in the, in the company is to make the power, make power and to make knowledge and um, interest and capacity really explicit and to make that explicit so that it can change so that people can understand what those dynamics are and if they feel like they need to shift their position in it that they can that they have ways to do that here's what christopher has to say on the matter i don't think yeah. there is a leader to i mean there's definitely no leader to this piece but I felt like I was, by proposing to do it, I had to host the idea to do it. And in order to do that, what I learned in terms of um, working with Evan and Liz and Amy um, was that I needed to, I needed a clear articulation of the structure for how we were going to be in this kind of leaderless situation that the piece proposes. And then I had to take responsibility for, like, what that meant, in, just practically. I learned, I feel like I tested something about what it means to propose a structure and be as transparent as possible with the hope that that can actually produce a situation where people can feel like they have a lot of agency to do what they think they need to be doing within that structure. And I think her piece is doing that. And so I just tried to do the same thing with the process. To be honest, I felt pretty uncomfortable about it because, I don't know, like I'm a cis white guy. <laughs> but I really think the piece is interesting and I wanted to try to um, yeah. visit it with people that I care about. And yeah. and I, I really had to kind of like interrogate my position <laughs> with it. Uh, and I, what I realized was that, like, the only way I can do that in a way that's responsible is to be, like, extremely clear about almost every aspect of what I think we're going to be doing together. And I think it worked out pretty well. Like, pe I think people felt pretty able to do what they want. Although you, you talked to them. Maybe they didn't. <laughs> I hope they did. Well, you know, I mean, it's a complicated question given all the focus on, you know, yeah. creating a group experience but you know at the end of the day there's something that happened and people you know, have different positions in yeah. creating that happening yeah and like actually uh we had a few little hangs with ruth howard do you know her she runs jumbly's theater she's a very cool um artist and 
organizer, she, we were talking to her about uh, collectives and like the viability of these kinds of ways of organizing. And she was, she, she used this phrase, transient hierarchies. She was like, well, she's like, transient hierarchies are okay. Like if you, if you know that they're going to change later and they're just functional in terms of like producing something. And especially if you're transparent about them being so, she's like, what's worth interrogating are like hierarchies that are continuing without interrogation. I don't think that the piece wants you to lock down what it means because, or at least there should be uh, an effort to sort of constantly um, refract its meaning in multiple directions. <laughs> we were trying to figure out structures to do that that would allow, you know, multiple things to exist at the same time that might be in conflict with each other, multiple ideas, multiple meanings that might produce a kind of cognitive dissonance, but that like the challenge was to try to like practice being in that and see what it produces. And now here's a recording of the final minute of the City Hall performance. There's a there's a sensory and expressive dimension and a, and a bodily resonance aspect to politics. You know, when I first walked in yeah. that room, I felt like just that sense of like, oh, somebody's been like working really hard on something in a small closet, like that feeling of like human stress and sweat and, <laughs> you know, tension. So it had that energy and it was transformed, mm. you know, by the playing. Yeah. You know, say you had a council meeting after that.
You know, the title is very provocative, obviously. It, it's also kind of weirdly timely. It's kind of sad to know that it's still timely, <laughs> in a way that it's, uh, it's pointing to these kind of women who had a certain amount of power and in their lives and how it went wrong. I think people were aware of that, but I don't think it came into, um, I mean, it didn't come into my head that much this time. It just, yep. you know, I wasn't thinking of political things when I was playing. One of the things that I felt excited about with the title was that it's a sort of dedication. It's not saying that the piece is about those people, you know. The poetics of the title, I think, are kind of really complicated. And Nikki Shosko, um, she mentioned something interesting to me about the title, which is that for her, it's really about the absence of Andy Warhol, because mm. these, these two people are kind of obviously connected to him. And... But we certainly were thinking of political things at City Hall. Everyone made, made sure they stood on certain people's chairs and things like that, or, or desks or whatever. Well, we weren't allowed to, but, you know, there was a lot of kind of rules. Uh, there, was, there was someone who was walking around the whole time making sure we didn't do certain things. There's a whole area that we couldn't go near, uh, the clerk desks. We couldn't stand on any of the desks or anything like that, which is, of course, something that we might want to do or sit. And so we did sort of do that in our own way. I love how Brian, um, the fellow with the um, pylon, he was amazing. <laughs> he was just incredible. Uh, put his foot on the Toronto sign at the back. It was really amazing to me that when he did that uh, moment in the performance, that was just uh, uh, wonderful. So I, I do feel like we kind of had this presence in City Hall that was unlike any presence it had felt for probably a very long time, if ever. Maybe that's what the political thing was. It was more about, yeah, we're here, we're from the GTA, and this is our, this is our city too, you know. Twisted curling. They nicker, they whinny, they blow. Sound It Out is produced in conjunction with the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation. You can find out more online at improvisationinstitute.ca, on Twitter at Improv Community, and on Facebook. The back episodes of Sound It Out are available at sounditoutiicsi.wordpress.com. I'm Rachel Elliott. I'm on Twitter at Consciousness Walk With Me. CS underscore walk underscore with underscore me. Bye.